It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Good morning and welcome to Accelerate. Yeah, I couldn't be more excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Meredith Elliott Powell. She's a consultant, a speaker, a coach, and author of several books, including Winning in the Trust and Value Economy. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, good, good. Well, glad you could make it. Uh, we're recording the show right in the aftermath of Snowmageddon that raged up and down the East Coast. So how did you fare in North Carolina over the weekend? Actually, we fared pretty well. We got out there, had a, had a lot of fun in the snow, but I'll tell you the best part about it is we got 12 inches, we did our sledding, all that good stuff, and it is supposed to be 55 to 60 by the weekend. Oh, gosh, so you have 12 inches of slush to deal with. That's great. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, here in, in New York, in Manhattan, they do a pretty good job of, of plowing the streets, but what happens is at the corners of every intersection, it piles up, and so literally... Already, there are you know, walking across the intersection, walking off, stepping off a corner is treacherous because you literally could step into twelve inches of slush because it all congregates there. Yeah. And so that's what—that's <laughs> the secret. New Yorkers know is is that you gotta as much as you can. You'll be very careful in the corners after a big snow. So, yeah, you have to wear your high boots. <laughs> so, yeah. well, welcome again for being at the show. And, and so, take a minute, introduce yourself before we get started talking. So. Tell us a little about yourself. Well, you pretty much um, said it at the beginning in the in the sense that I am a consultant, uh, coach, speaker, and author. My area of expertise is business growth. I am passionate about the fact that how we succeed today is different than it was um, prior to 2008. That is when our world really shifted in relation to how we grow our businesses, how we engage our employees, how we deal um, with our customers. So that is me on the business side. It, on the personal side, when I am not running my business out speaking and engaging with customers, I would rather be doing anything I can do outside, riding my road bike, my mountain bike, hiking in the woods. I am an outdoorsy um, type of girl. So a road bike. Oh, good. So what do you ride? I ride my um, Trek, uh, I forget, uh, Trek Madone. Both my Trek husband Madone, and I yeah. do um, a lot of, um, of road biking and uh, um, compete in a lot of races across the country. Oh, you do? Oh, excellent. No, we, don't, we, we don't win, let me say. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, so I'm sitting here with my uh, arm. I broke my wrist in, on a road bike accident uh, in December. So I'm almost almost healed, but I'm still wearing a, a temporary splint. But uh, more importantly, my bike is healed. And it cost me a new front wheel and a new fork and and uh, some other <laughs> some other stuff. But uh, ready to get back on it. <laughs> well, it's almost that season again. Yeah, well, in California, yeah, you know, all the time. So, all right, so. Let's talk about what you just brought up because be, you talked about how things changed in 2008. Now, that's interesting. I, I mean, certainly I understand how things changed, you know, in the broader sense, the macro sense for, you know, the economy's never really come back and how people view institutions as, you know, sort of irrevocably changed. But, but tell me what you think about, you know, why it's changed relative to how you grow a business, how you engage your employees, and so on. 
you know, it is um, it is really interesting. You can actually see the shift having if you if if you were a geek like me and and researched it, you can see the shift starting to happen around um, 2004. 2004 is actually the last year on record when consumer confidence was at this crazy high and we were just buying and doing like the money was never going to run out. But actually, um, when when everything started to shift around 2006, between 2006 and 2008, we keep talking about the fact that this economy is down, it's up a little bit, it's down. And really what happened was we have literally gone through um, an economic shift moving out of what's known as a push economy and into what's known as a pool economy. Kind of like the way that, you know, when we all, I'm assuming most of your listeners were in high school or junior high, and we talked about, you know, moving from, you know, days of agriculture into the industrial um, Mm -hmm. uh, age. We have moved into a different type of shift. And the easiest thing to understand about it is, you know, so you don't have to sit through an econ 101 class, is when we made this shift, we went from a time when business was in control to the time that consumers are in control. Again, I'm, I am 52 years old. And when I grew up, there were two banks downtown. If you didn't like one bank, you went across the street to the other bank where the teller was rude to you, so you went back across the street to the other one. Now I can literally sit in my house and bank anywhere I want to in the world. That has changed how we do business in this economy. It is a completely different type of market. And leadership and sales books used prior need to go out the window and and you need to adopt a new approach. Well, but I guess the question, back to my original question, though, is so I mean, those are sort of trends that, that were affected by more macro developments in terms of the Internet and the rise of technology. And, and But what it was about 2008 itself, though, that galvanized some of this change? Well, you know, so much of that really centers around this whole idea of, um, of trust. Uh, you know, I believe that when Lehman Brothers fell, that was the shot heard round the world. Again, prior to that, um, institutions we really believed would be there forever. Not long after that, um, Wachovia uh, went mm-hmm. down. And, and with that went this whole idea that, that companies would be there forever. If you invested money, it would be safe. Um, and all of a sudden, we as a, we as a, um, as a set of consumers began to lose trust. Because again, reporters, politicians, government groups kept saying to us, things are up, things are down, things will be okay. Oops, now they're not. And people just got worn out by the whole thing and said, you know, I'm going to stop trusting what's being said to me and really go inward and start to look at what I can do and what I can control. And 2008 is when trust went out of our economy and ironically, usually when things are hard to come by, they become the thing that we most want. And that is when trust became something that is incredibly important to consumers, to the general public. So you're saying it's become more important? Far more important because it's far harder to find. Far harder to find. Interesting. So just in the sense that, well, let's, let's okay, let's break it down. So... I can certainly see some of that as it relates to, you know, people to institutions, the big institutions. So, 
if we look at this from a person-to-person standpoint, I mean, are people in general less trusting of, and we'll take it out of a business context first and bring it back into business, are people less trusting of people they meet outside of business? I think people are, um, I think people are far more skeptical today in the sense of, um, of what it takes to, what it takes to trust. People aren't as interested in what, you know, relationship to relationship might be a little bit different. I mean, I think that's a personal thing. Maybe you're a trusting individual, you know, versus somebody who, who isn't, but, but, Yes, I mean we have become we have become twofold. One is whenever the economy goes shifting, it's it's it you know it starts to change. Things are different. Security goes out of the system. We become very self-protected. We we worry about um, taking care of our of ourselves first. So that has created um, a different type of feeling um, out there. Then add to that the fact that that yes, people are skeptical in general you know when when i was growing up if an advertising if an advertisement came on television and it promised something people believed in it we believed in our reporters we believed in our government officials we don't believe that anymore just because we see it on television read it on the internet isn't we don't necessarily trust it we are skeptical first and so if we translate this into the business side so i mean i think that that i just wonder because what you're to me what you were describing before is this condition i I would call sort of blind faith as necessary as maybe as opposed to trust right Mm -hmm. where if trust is something that's earned blind faith was something that was just it was like received wisdom right so Mm -hmm. people trusted into institutions it's more like they had blind faith in them because they'd never been given a reason not to trust them which you know, to me is, is sort of an interesting test. So, so um, if we translate this into the business sense, so what does that mean for you know somebody that's trying to sell something? I mean, it's is it harder to gain the trust of a potential buyer? You know, harder is. I don't think harder is the definition. What I think it is is different. Um, you know. You build trust by building relationship first. You build trust by what it means for a person who sells something um, is that you need to really take an interest in the other person and build relationship first rather than sell your product and service first. You need to sell from the perception that you need to sell from the position that the person being sold to feels that you are offering them something that is in their best interest. But is that different? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the um, if you look at the sales strategies that most of us learned coming up through the '80s, the '90s, and prior to 2004, there was the um, assumed close. The um, you know walk into a networking event and give your elevator speech. Um, There was the art of the close. How do you, basically, it was all about how do you sell something to somebody, not how do you really find out what, um, what, who that person is, what that person needs, and what product or service will, um, will, will work for them. Every sales class I ever took 
when I lived in the financial services world. What cracked? What, I think about this now, and it just makes me laugh. We spent we spent a whole year learning how to pre-call plan sales calls. And we would sit down and literally decide what products or services we were going to sell to people before we ever had a conversation with them. <laughs> now, was it that? Was, but was you know, that? It yeah, sure. it was just the, the 80s thing. It was, you know, like, and that's where I feel like people got really messed up with wanting to be salespeople because everything you were taught was about how to reach your sales call, how to get to the close, how to sell X amount of products. That's what was incented and that was what re- was rewarded. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because yeah, at the same time, in those, those same generations, there were, you know, Bosworth's book, Consultative Selling, there was Spin Selling from Rackham, which, which were relationship-driven, right? Which were about really customer-focused uh, sales. And so I think what I hear you saying is that given sort of the go-go ethos of the 90s with the rising stock market and the rising, you know, especially in the financial services where, you know, scads of money was being made uh, through sort of financial engineering and so on, that, that that sort of drowned out maybe the more rational voices that were talking about customer-oriented selling. I, completely. You know, I think you, you are absolutely right. We have been talking about relationship selling. I remember the. I remember I, I researched this for a book. Is the first time I ever took a relationship selling class was in 1984. I don't think I ever was incented or taught or rewarded for selling from a relationship standpoint until I went out on my own. So my entire career, which lasted in corporate America until 2005, mm-hmm. was all from the opposite way of selling. And, and no wonder, it worked. Again, you know, the, their, c- consumers didn't have, you know, didn't have a lot of, um, of choice. And there was, whether it's blind faith or whether it's trust, if a banker told you to get this product or service, you did it. If your, um, you know, if your uh, retailer told you that you needed to buy this, you you did it. You took the recommendations that were given to you. The things that happened in 2008 made a lot of the public start to go, wait a minute, I need to pay attention and I need to look for somebody that I have a relationship with. So what has... What excuse me? What what have salespeople had to do differently since then and today, up to today and going forward? What do they need to do to accelerate this trust building with prospects? They have really um, had to. You know, it, it it sounds so cliche, but they have really had to back up and build relationships. They've need to, they've needed to slow the sales process down on the front end. You know, we used to. Um, Again, with the pre-call planning, we would have a call and expect to sell a product or service within, um, you know, within two or three calls. You need to slow that down and really get to know um, uh, people. The other is, probably more importantly, is you need to be continually adding value on the back end. It takes a while to build trust, but you need to pay attention once you have that trust built, because I see far too often that if a client is an existing client, you need to be calling and working with them just as actively as you do with new prospects. Once you have built trust with somebody, the worst thing that can happen to you is that they find out about a product or service that you offer from somebody else. 
if you do that, you break trust and you start all, all the way back over again. Okay. Well, I want to come back and explore that in more depth. We're going to take a short break right now. My guest, Meredith Elliott-Powell, we're talking about the trust and value economy. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. All right, and welcome back. So we're talking today with Meredith Elliott-Powell. We're talking about really sort of the future of selling relative to building trust and providing value to your prospects. So you started before the break, we started talking about adding value to prospects. And you know, to me, that's, that's a critical step in building trust, right? I mean, it's not like you build trust, then you add value. It's like really the process of delivering value to your prospects through how you sell to them enhances trust and builds it. So, you know, what, what is value in selling? When you're saying add value, what, what did you mean? Well, it's twofold, in my opinion. Um, at the beginning of a relationship, adding value can mean, um, can, can really be about anything that the, um, that the individual you're working with needs. For example, I was at um, a networking event. I met somebody that I would really like to establish a relationship. I would like to do some work for his company. Adding value is the fact that he's looking for a salesperson right now. I happen to know two people that I think would be good for him to interview. Now, those aren't necessarily my products or services, but adding value is I want to enhance the entire relationship, whether it directly benefits me or not. Mm -hmm. Now, with my existing clients, people that I either do speaking engagements with, I do some consulting or I do some training, you know, for, um, for example, tomorrow I've got a scheduled call with a client that we've wrapped up a service that I'm providing to him. And I want to go through and I want to talk about other things to see if there's anything else that he needs. It's my job at this point, once that relationship is built, adding value is about understanding what your customer's um, challenges, their opportunities are, and then really matching your products and services to those or another you know, another, somebody else who offers different, but helping them achieve their goals proactively, not waiting for your customers to understand how to do business with you, but you understanding how your, what you offer adds value to their lives and their goals. So why is this uh, such a difficult task for salespeople to really grasp? Because that you know, if you read read the literature, you work with companies and so on, is and talk to CEOs and sales leaders is, and customers. Is still the stereotype is that hey, salespeople show up and talk about themselves first and me second, me the prospect second. How do we how do we change that that mindset? How do we get that to be standard <laughs> procedure that people lead with questions as opposed to talking about themselves first? You know, first of all, I think it's, I'm laughing because I was talking with a, um, a friend of mine this morning. We're working on a, a, a project together. 
And we were both talking about the fact that why is it so difficult for people to, to, um, to make change? Um, why do they stay with the status quo even when they know it's, it isn't working? But to answer the question is really is the fact that first, companies have got to look at incentive programs. You really need to look at what behaviors you're rewarding, you're complementing, you're incenting. Um, most are focused on a short-term goal versus then a long-term um, relationship. The other is you need to change the training. Um, you need to make sure that that people are both trained and coached on making this type of shift. The beauty of it is when they do, this is sustainable selling. I can talk to people all day long and listen to them and think about how I can help their business be successful. I can do that until the, you know, I can make 20 of those types of calls a week. Pushy selling, cold calling, I, th I think I am representative of most of the population. I can't sustain that. Maybe I can do it for a three-month hit, but I can't sustain it long-term. So, okay. So how do we, back to your talk about you know, training and coaching, but I mean, what does that really look like? Because, I mean, I've, I ask guests this a lot because this is a sort of a passion point for me is because I think our sales training in general sort of irrevocably broken in oh, the yeah, model we okay. use. So, so what does that look like? Because the issue is that, you know, we, we tend to hit people with globs of training and they, you know, they tend to forget it. And we don't put in place the mechanisms to say, hey, how, we're gonna, how do we make this a part of your daily routine? How do we make this part of your process that you know the first thing you do when you see a customer is ask a question? Well, I do think that the, I mean, I think it needs to be threefold and, and, and kind of back to what I said before is that first you send them through the training class and the training class needs to be customized to your organization and designed to train the type of skills you want. That needs to be backed up by coaching. Your sales managers and sales leaders need to be coaching one-on-one -on -one live the, um, the behaviors that you want your salespeople to use. The, and then the foundation of that, the, the backbone of that, is the incentive. Are you rewarding? If you put those three layers into place, um, then you'll see the shift. Now, to answer a little bit of your question, um, you know, to answer a little bit more in detail about training, I don't think, you know, when I was coming up through the ranks, we would go into three-day training classes for sales. And I don't think those things work. I think we're talking about moving a dial and basically getting people to make a, 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 a strong shift, a radical shift for them, um, especially for people who have been selling the opposite way for a long time. I would do it in shorter um, you know, I would do it in shorter training modules. I'd work on the interview first. I'd work on the set, you know, the, the second call I'd work on the close. I'd work on the follow-up. I'd be working them in pieces, but without the coaching, you know, without coaching them in the incentive piece, your training isn't going to stick. And this seems to be a problem. People, several people have written about recently. Um, great book came out by a gentleman named Mike Weinberg about uh, sales management simplified detailing that, you know, we have this sort uh, problem has become more data-driven in sales that more and more sales managers are sort of wedded to the metrics and have really fallen away from some of the coaching. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, you know, no wonder. I mean, the coaching is where it's hard, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's easy to look at um, it's easy to look at data. It's easy to look at reports, and it's easy to tell people what to do. It is more um, time consuming to um, to coach, and requires more the art of um, of relationship. So people tend to um, steer away from it. I think some of the other challenges we've made is we've promoted a lot of people into sales leadership and sales management positions who are good at sales. They're not really good at coaching people and identifying that and understanding the difference. You've got to like it. You've got to love it. You've got to be passionate about developing people to be good at it. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I see a lot of companies have made that mistake. So... But how do they change that without bringing people into sales leadership positions that have no sales background? Because we're seeing a lot of that as well. Well, I think that, um, you know, first of all, I think you need to, to really look at what you, um, what you want in a sales leader and get those values and qualities and try to promote for with that. But I would start with my existing sales leadership. Just because they're not great at it doesn't mean... They can't be graded it. I would try to train them. But if they're not, if it's not like I think of this gentleman that I used to work with, he hated, he hated developing people, couldn't stand it. All he wanted to do was be out closing sales. If I were in charge there, I would have moved him back into a producer oh, absolutely. position. You know, and found. But we're funny about that. We, um, we tend to, we tend to only promote, um, in, we start, companies sort of have a structure and you sort of go up the ladder according to a structure, not according to your talents. And that's and that system needs to be redesigned. And do you see that though predominantly more older school, older line companies? I mean, it does, seems to be less the case perhaps in some of the tech companies that I'm familiar with that that uh, they're automatically promoting the best people up into management because you know the monetary incentives to stay in sales are pretty strong. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The um, you know the tech companies have the have the wonderful luxury of being um, innovative, being young, younger companies and not having the, um, the burden of undoing age-old um, you know, age uh, structures um, and, you know, and things. So I think they have a little bit more, um, more luck with that. I think going forward, corporations, though, again, they, for years they could get away with it because they had, there was so much more fat in the margin. And the fat's just not there in the margin anymore. And, and talent and your people are really all you've got. And so you really need your people who are passionate about developing salespeople, developing your salespeople. You have a lot of um, younger talent coming out right now that would make great salespeople, but they need trained and developed. And without that mentorship, they will move on. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you read about millennials is that people coming into the workforce now is, is that they are generally pretty good about trying to seek out mentors. Yes. So, but that doesn't always have to be a manager. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be. Um, it doesn't have to be a manager. But imagine if you're a company and you put good mentors and good leaders in place and a millennial wasn't left to their own devices to go have to find a mentor. I just say you're going to do a pretty good job of attracting some pretty strong and pretty talented millennials. Right. All right. Well, great. Well, we're going to move on to the last segment of the show. I thank you for your answers about trust and value. And so the last segment of the show, I've got some questions I post to all my guests. And uh, yeah, some you can give me one word answer. Some require a little more thought. You ready? Yes. 
Okay, so here's the first one. A hypothetical scenario everybody gets here on the show is let's assume that you have been recently hired as a sales leader at a company whose sales have <laughs> fallen through the fallen through the floor and definitely stalled and they definitely need to be turned around. Senior management's really anxious for something new to happen. So your first week on the job, what two things could you do that would have the biggest impact? Two things that I would do to have the biggest impact is I would interview our salespeople and find out from their opinion what we're doing well and what we're not doing well and what their top two um, things that we need to do in order to be successful because I believe that people support what they help create. So I would go to the people who actually do the job. The second is I would do a focus group with um, some of our disgruntled customers and some of our best customers. And again, find out what we need to do in order to move the company forward. Okay. All right. Good. All right. So now these are sort of uh, maybe more rapid fire questions. You can give one word answers if you want or elaborate as you wish. So when you're selling, what's your biggest sales strength? My biggest sales strength is in uh, listening, listening, asking questions, and really being patient to allow trust to build. Okay. What tool do you use for managing your own sales that you can't live without? Oh, I cannot live without, um, I have two, and one I don't know if you can call a tool, but um, one is my customer relationship management system. I can't live with, which, um, without that. It prompts me every day to make which, my sales which one? Which one do you use? I use high rise. Okay, high rise. Okay. Um, the second tool is um, is my sales uh, assistant. Um, she, when I get into the flow of having a lot of work to do, she follows up for me. She um, is my second in, in relationship with my customers. I can't live without her. Okay. Who's your sales role model? Who is my sales role model? You know what? A great um, a great question. Um, my sales role model, I would say, would have to be um, Jill Conrath. I mean, I probably read her stuff more than I read anybody's um, stuff, and I've been a big fan of hers for a long time. Good. Very good one. So what's the one book that every salesperson should read besides your and own? One, yeah, besides my own, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said mine anyway. That would be um, gauche. Um, the one is that I tell every client I work with is to back all the way up and go to Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. At the end of the day, for me, it is always about building relationship, and that is the best book on the market to understand how to do that. Okay. So what music's on your playlist? Music on my playlist. Well, you know, I'm a bit of a of an <laughs> of a past a go back um, uh, girl history. I, I really like on my playlist right now is uh, Jackson Brown. Mm -hmm. I've got a little bit of um, some old Rodney Crowell, a little bit old um, Nancy um, Griffith. Oh, I love Nancy um, Griffith. Yeah, I love the whole Austin um, music scene. So. All those guys coming up um, out of Austin are a lot that um, that I listen to. Okay, yeah, no, that's good, good stuff. So, <laughs> what's the first sales activity you do every day? Oh, that's really easy. Um, I get up and first cup of coffee. I'm on um, LinkedIn and just reaching out, making three contacts. It's the first thing I do every single morning. Okay, last question for you. What's the one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople? Oh, you know what? How to close this? How to close the sale? And the answer is 
the answer to the question is that the sale ought to be closed long before you need it to close. And what I mean by that is that if, if you're asking really good questions, if you're building relationships and sales has become a lifestyle instead of a task, the sale will close. You don't get to close the sale. The customer decides when that happens. Absolutely. Actually, I gave a webinar last week. I, the title of it was how to, how to win the sale before you win the order. <laughs> Perfect. Then we are, we are on the same page. Same way. I, get, I, I get asked that one all the time. Everybody's looking for the secret sauce. Yeah, I tell people, if, if you don't know that you're going to win the order, <laughs> then why are you still working the prospect? Exactly, exactly. And people may think that's a little crazy, but believe me, is <laughs> if you have any doubt in your mind about a prospect on your forecast, when you get down to the end, you've given them a proposal. It's like, if you don't know you're going to win, why did you give them a proposal? Exactly. And, 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 and to really look at that, you should be so sure of it. You should have built enough relationship. And, um, and again, so we circle all the way back to, to, to where we started, to, we started the interview. I mean, it, it sounds so easy, but truly building relationships is an art, and it is something you never master. You get better and better and better at. Yep. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining me. My guest today has been Meredith Elliott Powell. And Meredith, please tell folks how they can find out more about you. That would be great. They can reach me at MeredithElliottPowell.com, MeredithElliottPowell.com, or please reach out to me on the social networking sites, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. I welcome uh, questions and calls and look for my um, new book coming out, Own It, Redefining Responsibility, all about how to um, take charge of your own career and build your business. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you again for joining us. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And subscribing to this podcast is a great way to do that because then you'll make sure you don't miss any of our conversations with top business experts like our guest today, Meredith Elliott Powell, who share their expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.